Father, we desire this morning to focus on you, focus what you have revealed to us, and as Mary Lee prayed, that we would not just admire and uh, appreciate what you've done, but that it would move us to live according to the way that you have specified and the way that you desire in fellowship with you. If there's anything that hinders that, we desire to confess it now and to be in fellowship to maximize what uh, you have for us. We praise you for your word. We praise you for what you've given us and the empowerment and the Holy Spirit. And we desire to live the full life that you desire us to live. So this morning, as we open up your word, we depend on you to enlighten us and to move us and to stir our hearts. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Take a look at the book of Romans. We're not in Revelation 2, 15 through 16. We're talking about God's judgment based on Revelation. We're actually in the book of Romans. So picking up in verse 15 where we left off last week. Letter written to the churches in Rome. And I usually show a couple of slides at the beginning just to remind you of some of the historical context. And in terms of the textual context, beginning in chapter 1 at least, and there's differences in terms of commentators as to where to begin the next section. To me, it makes more sense to start in chapter 2. I kind of see some parallels with the first section where Paul seems to give uh, an introductory statement laying out, just like in verse 18, he basically says that all are under God's wrath, and he's dealing, it seems, with a different audience. If not, it's somewhat transitional, if not a third little tiny section between. But I start the section on Jews in verse 1, chapter 2 where he lays out the predicament of that mindset, at least. In other words, a religious approach to life, a moral approach, you might even say. In other words, they had morality, they had the law, and we saw the emphasis of that. And from that perspective, that mindset thought, well, we're, we're fine with God. I mean, we're his chosen, we're privileged, so judgment doesn't pertain to us. So he lays out the predicament of those that are depending on their own self-righteous works and acts, and they are liable for judgment as well. So he lays out the principles, and hopefully we'll complete that portion when we get to verse 16, beginning in verse 2, the principles of judgment, a reminder to the religious mindset, or the self-righteous, or the Jewish audience, that a reminder of what they knew from the Old Testament pertaining to God's judgment. So these are all laid out in the Old Testament, and we've looked at the principles there. And then now, very clearly, every commentator at least begins the section dealing with the Jews in verse 17. And in verse 17, he even identifies them, O you Jew, you call yourself Jew, so it's without a doubt that he's dealing with the Jewish audience But I think he begins even in verse 1. So he's going to prove their guilt based on what he's just laid out in terms of the principles. And now you are guilty, therefore you are under God's judgment as well. Not just Gentiles. 
Every Jew would agree. In fact, they would say, preach it, Paul. Those Gentiles, they are liable for God's judgment. In fact, hurry up with God's judgment. And now he's going to bring it to home. And they're going to argue the case as the Jewish mindset tended to. So he's going to deal with their protests. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And we've been reviewing this for the last, what, 70 years? Yeah, something like that. And if you haven't noticed already, we are alliterating predicament, key of self-righteous, principles of judgment, proof of Jews' guilt, and then protests, or the more common word is objections of the Jews. Chapter 3. We'll get there someday, maybe, Lord willing, unless the rapture takes place. So, that's right. So, the principles based on truth, verse 2 And we're talking about absolute truth, so we define what truth is. And God is omniscient, so he knows all truth, and particularly the case that he will build ultimately in the ultimate court of judgment. And the evidence is there, and it's accurate, it's truthful, there's no deviation. And no one escapes, verses 3 through 4. And what's going to be evaluated is conduct, 5 through 8. And it's going to be impartial. In other words, none are privileged in terms of judgment. God's going to deal with the Jew first because he has more revelation, basically. And that's one of the reasons why I see the fifth principle based on Revelation, verses 12 through 16, Because it starts with four, so he ties it together. In fact, our little chart here, verse 11, the principle of impartiality. And it starts, verse 12, with four, so it ties it back. And I think it's just an expansion of the impartial idea. Well, you might think, well, there's an inequality in terms of privilege. The Jewish people, they're not on the same basis as the Gentile. They have a lot more. But God is still impartial in that it's also based on the amount of revelation. And we've already seen those with more revelation, that only makes them more accountable. And in fact, for them, if they ignore that revelation, the judgment will be more severe. And we looked at a couple of verses where Jesus makes that point as well more tolerable for these pagan cities than were than the cities where he performed miracles. So the judgment is based on Revelation, beginning of verse 12, and there's two parts to it. Connected again for the Jews who are under law, they are liable because they have the law and their, their judgment is based on the Mosaic law, the revelation they have. The Gentiles who are without law, they also come under God's judgment. That wouldn't be questioned. But you might wonder, well, maybe it's unfair to the Gentiles. They don't have the Mosaic law. So Paul goes into his little exposition that uh, there's a law that transcends the Mosaic law. We looked at that last time, or the last three times. So 14 through 15 deals primarily with Gentiles. And then he kind of sums the whole thing up. And remember from, I think, what is it, 13 or 14? I'll look at my outline for one sentence. So I see 16 connected with the when, a 
subordinate clause, and what he's pointing to is final judgment based on the gospel. That's verse 16. So that's kind of an overview on a chart of this passage and its relationship to verse 11. So now we're talking about the moral law. We started on it, so we'll pick up with the moral law, verses 14 through 16. There we go. 14 through 16 is one sentence. The four ties it back to verse 13. And the main clause, or the main subject and verb, these are a law to themselves, speaking about the Gentiles. A law to themselves. And law there, namas. How is it used in this context? Remember, it's not capitalized, so it's not referring to the same concept, same word, different usage. Moral law. Moral law, exactly. Or a law that transcends and underlies the Mosaic law that all of humanity, in fact, the passage says, has it. We talked about God building it in them. Then we saw the connectors for when, starting with a subordinate clause, Gentiles who, subordinate clause within a subordinate clause, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law. These, and you can include not having the law as part of the independent clause, are a law to themselves. And then we have another subordinate, 15, in that They show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, and this, we have a series of participles in there. You'd think I was an expert in grammar. I'm an engineer. I don't know anything about grammar. (laughs) Well, I learned it when I had to, okay? And then verse 16, the when is, you could even say, when on the day, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus ends with a subordinate clause, tying it all together. If you break down the parts, it'll help you to understand. The only reason we do grammar, because I hate it, the only reason we do it is in order to try to understand what is Paul saying and how does he organize his thoughts in order that we can look at God's thoughts and be able to understand what God's thinking so that we can align ourselves with the thoughts of God. So that's how I break it down. And just... We've already reviewed that, so we're, we're looking at 14 through 15, and in fact, we're going to actually go to 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, they don't have the law, so how's God going to evaluate them? These, not having the law, are a law unto themselves. They're a law unto themselves, this moral law. We mentioned with this cartoon, we're kind of hoping to let our conscience be our guide. That's Moses with the Ten Commandments. Uh, Okay, we don't like the specificity of the Mosaic Law. So he's kind of protesting, if you will. And in fact, cartoon speaks of this moral law that resides in conscience. And it doesn't mention it, but he's holding the Mosaic law, or at least the Ten Commandments are somewhat the basis of it. We mentioned the moral law underlies the Mosaic law, and remember the Mosaic law has a point in time when God delivered it to the nation of Israel, so you might wonder, well, was everyone free to do whatever they wanted to before the Mosaic law? Because they didn't know what the law was. 
Well, this is the key passage that tells you they did know what the law was because there's a law that underlies it that transcends the Mosaic law. Mosaic law, God only made the moral law more specific and there are some aspects that are only pertinent to that covenant people. It's the Mosaic covenant. But there is a law, and I mentioned several times that The New Testament reiterates nine of the Ten Commandments that underlie that law. So what about all the people before the revelation of the Mosaic Law? Well, they weren't free of law. They were under this moral law. So it's always been against the law to steal, to lie, commit murder, commit adultery. Those are part of the Ten Commandments. Connie? Would you say that conscience was given before Adam and Eve updated the knowledge of good and evil, or maybe at that point was when... No, it's part... That's what we... The point we made is it's part of creation. It's part of the image of God. Part of the image of God, yeah. Otherwise, they would not have had accountability if they didn't have conscience. No conscience... It's just a guilty conscience that you have after sin. Knowledge of sin. Right. Right. But they had... They had... Say that again? More laws on sin. Yeah. So it underlies the Mosaic Law, so it's eternal. It transcends all of the periods of time. The Mosaic Law is not only part of the moral law, but it also has specifics that pertain only to the nation of Israel. And that's why it's called the Mosaic Covenant, because it's between Israel, it's their constitution. That's why we are free to eat shrimp and pork and other things that were prohibited because we're not under the law in the sense that we're not under the covenant. The covenant is with the nation of Israel. But that doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want because underlying that is the moral law that everyone is under. And it's eternal. It's also universal. That means that everyone is subject to that law. No one escapes it. It's kind of like Natural law that Linda was talking about last week. Natural law, everyone is under it. And if you try to violate it, you can't escape it. The illustration that we used was jumping off a 10-story building and saying, I'm going to violate the law of gravity. But uh, you never escape it because you end up splat on the ground. So you can try to violate, but you cannot, right? Anybody who's doing the C.S. Lewis oh, it's the, the argument of in mere Christianity starts with looking around and seeing that people assume there's, like, that's not fair, or I got here for, you know, that, that people there, assume that there is a law and everybody knows it. There is a right or wrong. So that guy is wrong. Yep. But it's just like, and then he builds from that onto the fact of meaning in the universe. Yep. So you would say that that universal law, so all the laws of physics, all the laws that we know are part of, you know, just like you can't, you know, people would say, well, everyone knows if you step off a 10-story building. It's stupid. But you also should know. And you do. But the difference is. That is also stupid to do. Yes. But it is stupid, but you can lie. Yeah. But you cannot jump off a building. You can. You can. I mean, without <laughs> going splat. And That's you the can't difference. can lie without there being consequences. Same thing, yeah. Yeah, but it's not. Immediate. There is another thing above lying 
which gives us the choice of lying or not lying. It's like a, a, a bigger law mm-hmm. that is a consciousness which isn't the law itself, that we but, are... But the point Bill and I are making yeah, I is you, that... But you can lie. There's still consequences. But not the same. You can lie. Look so at the world. Look at the world. That's what, what, what Lewis's point okay. is. And we also said that it's according to nature, or what it talks about in the passage itself, making it instinctive, or you might even say something like it's part of the image of God, It's built into mankind. Every single human being has it built in. It's instinctive, you might say. It's by nature, by creation, by creation. In other words, everyone has it. Every human being has it. Yeah, we just touched on this last time. We're going to expand upon how do we experience it. All right, so it's instinctive. Then in verse 15, this is where we left off. In that they show the work of the law, referring to the Gentiles, they show the work of the law written in their hearts. In other words, it's built in, it's put there by creation. We don't develop it or we don't learn it. It's there and you can see it in a little child, even a young baby. You can sense that there's something in there they know that something's wrong or something's right. So it's written in their heart. So we said it's internal, it's instinctive, and it's internal. It's in the heart, the innermost part of mankind. And then it says their conscience, that's where it resides. The conscience resides in the innermost part of man. When it talks about the heart, in some context, it clearly refers not only to this nebulous, inward man, but it includes the mind, it includes the thinking, and I think the passage is going to expand upon that, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts, see the thoughts, the two are tied together. So it resides and includes our thinking, our rationale, and it has to, because the conscience is telling us, it's communicating to us something. We rationalize and we think through, okay, I'm going to take this direction. And our conscience says, "Mm, I don't know. Or Linda says, I'm going to do it anyway, right? (laughs) People do. Yeah. I mean, all the time. That's the point. That's the point. There is some bigger thing that they, yeah. Exactly. Or we say, oh, okay, I'm going to listen and I'm going to change directions here. And we're going to expand upon that as well. So it resides in the heart. It's internal and residing in conscience. So there's your complete slide there. It underlies the Mosaic Law. It's eternal. It applies to everyone. It's universal. It's built in, or by creation, part of the image of God. We call that instinctive, just to use one word. Resides in the heart internally, so you can't see it. It's not visible residing specifically in what is described as conscience. And then the Bible tells us a lot about conscience, so we're going to expand a little word study here. If you do a word study, basically what I'm going to give you is a product of a word study I did on the word conscience. So you can look it up yourself. And there's a few related passages that pertain to the conscience where the word is not present. So that's basically what we're going to look at. 
So, conscience is kind of like Simpson, uh, you know, in the cartoon. He's got one on one shoulder and a saintly uh, Homer and a demonic Homer on one side. So, even secularists recognize that there's something that communicates that's internal and everybody's aware of it. And basically, the analogy we can use, it's kind of like the nervous system that God has built into us. And when the nervous system is working properly, it's designed to send signals to us. We touch a hot object. Our nervous system says, stay away from that because there's going to be damage done if you continue to touch that hot object. Communicates. Send signals. You can... In fact, damage that nervous system. Drugs can hinder it from or limit it. We take pain pills to limit the nervous system is communicating, and sometimes that's not a bad thing, but uh, sometimes it is a bad thing. Or you can have an injury that may even cut off. That's paralysis where the nervous system is cut off. It's like leprosy that disease that destroys the nervous system. Similarly, the conscience, no, this is the analogy we're making. Conscience is similar. In its pure state, it will, in fact, communicate purely, if you will, or honestly or clearly. But because of sin, sin damages the conscience and distorts it. It's like damaged nerve endings. And the Bible even uses the word seared. That's almost like the nerve endings cut off or... Somewhere the, the system is cut off, like in paralysis. The searing, you can almost do the same thing. That's the Hitlers. That's those that their conscience is seared. And I think you can go beyond repair, but there is possibility of repair. We'll talk about that. Or healing of conscience. Now, we don't use that word, but it's the same concept in the analogy. So it's like nerve endings. You can use that analogy. And the Bible uses a lot of descriptive terms and phrases and passages. In fact, these we need to look up. And then I'm going to give you a list of other descriptive adjectives describing the conscience that gives us insight into it. Who wants to do 1 Timothy 1, 5 and 19? Someone else get chapter 3, verse 9. Which one you got, Mary Lee? The first do one, five through 19, somebody, three, somebody, Connie, and you want to do the last one, chapter four? You got it, Mary Lee? First Timothy 1, 5. Okay. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So some of our actions come from a clear, or yours says good conscience, Pure heart, so you might even say a healthy conscience, if you want to use the health analogy. So there exists a healthy, operative, you might say, conscience that sends good signals such that we can have accurate and good responses to it. And that's the goal, right? In other words, that's what we want to maintain. We want to maintain a good, clear conscience then all of the nerve endings are connected. We're getting signals. We're getting information. We're getting revelation, you might even say. 
And God has built this into every human being. So there's that possibility of a good conscience. You got 19 now, Mary Lee? I do, but it's a partial sentence. So can I read a Sure. This charge I entrust to you, that by then you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. See? You stand proven, exactly, okay? But notice, maintaining a good conscience, and others have damaged their conscience, and they've ended up as shipwreck. So their faith is dissolved because the nerve endings... They've cut off the the nerve endings, yeah. Become shipwrecked. So we can damage that that is good. And the whole point that we're going to make, the main application, is we need, as believers, to continually maintain a healthy, if you will, conscience or a clear conscience. We'll talk some more about that. Betty? I I guess I've heard, and it's a nice analogy, that, you know, you're just like a muscle. It can become lax. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the the more you kind of push, the more like, like a rubber band, eventually it's... Elasticity. Elasticity. It's not like it's dead. Right. And I don't know if you can bolster that. Yeah. I think it's beyond that. The consciousness is beyond that thing. That. That's part of it. There's consciousness that you have consciousness. Not consciousness. Conscience. Conscience. You're conscious Mm -hmm. of it. And there's this choice is what... You're conscious of your conscience. I think it's a great analogy only because... um, you can suppress. We can suppress that. First Timothy three nine, three nine. Mine too is a part of the sentence. Um, in verse eight, he says, "Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double tongued, not give much wine, nor greedy for money." Verse nine, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Mm-hmm. Okay, now that's in a context of leaders, church leaders. What is it? Deacons or elders? Deacons. deacons okay. Deacons. So deacons should maintain a clear conscience. Is that how you're translated? Mm-hmm. Okay. And you've got 4-2? Do you mind if I read the Karen? first two? Is a... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we, we like to read complete sentences. Good. Okay. Now the Spirit expressly said in latter times, some will depart from giving keys and doctrine. Okay, we're talking in this context, false teachers departing from the faith. Okay. So two says, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own. Conscience seared with a hot. There's the analogy. The analogy is biblical. The seared seared conscience, like an iron that kills the nerve ending. But you know, I'm I'm hearing in that was it three nine about the elders and deacons. What was that last part? Through this faith. um, What was last part? The mystery of the faith. So that's kind of like what what Linda said. It's a music. Is that the composer's music? Or is that our music? Well, you know, you hold composers are her analogy. That's what I mean. Well, I mean, it's the composer is it. to. Well, anyway, it's the pursuit of that. Mm-hmm. You have to pursue it or else you go into a state of, like you said, law of thermodynamics. You go into a state of apathy. Mm-hmm. And, I think and Christians do not pursue holiness. Right. You have to pursue it. Yes. You have to be obedient. Absolutely. You have to believe. You have to trust. Right. But you cannot, you can do it. You can live without it. But even those but it, who have not had the word right. still are aware of yes. exactly. this. And, and by the way, in, the, Ro- the, in the Romans that's, that's, context, it's speaking of the unbeliever. 
because he's condemning the unbeliever, unbelieving Jew, but he also reverts back to the unbelieving Gentile. So the unbeliever has conscience. And those passages, like the First Timothy 4.2, is speaking of false teachers that have gone even beyond their unbelievers. They're distorting the truth. Their consciences are seared. So there's the possibility of having a seared conscience. All right? And some of the descriptions, I gave you some of the verses. We won't read these, but some of the adjectives that are used to describe conscience. You can have a blameless conscience. That's like a clear conscience. That's when you have to pursue it. That's when you have all your, you know, all sin forgiven. First John 1, 9. That's Acts 24, 16. But kind of the counterpart is you can wound it. You can damage it. Another verse that kind of supports the nerve-ending idea, the analogy, that's 1 Corinthians 8.12. By the way, in that context, the conscience is used several times, eating meat sacrificed to idols, even though all meats have been declared clean. In that culture, in that context, you can damage your conscience by eating Meats offered, and he's addressing this to Christians, so you can wound your conscience. And in Second Timothy one three, you can have a clear conscience, and I think some of the others that we looked at use that word as well. Or your conscience is weak. Same context. First Corinthians eight seven, you can have a good conscience. First Peter three sixteen, or an evil conscience. Hebrews ten twenty two. And I didn't give you verses here because it didn't fit on the slide, but you can have a cleanse conscience. That's as a result of forgiveness. Cleanse your conscience. You can cleanse it. You can also defile it, the alternative, and continually defile it. Betty. You know, I, I'm, as we talk even between ourselves, everybody's got a little bit of different interpretation. I mean, we, we have our tenets, but... If I'm speaking in a different arena, a little bit bringing in my opinions about my you know, who, who's to be, I can't be blameless if theirs is pure or if theirs is tighter or if they, I mean, there's so many different variations. You know? Yeah. And I think and, there's a spectrum here in terms of where we're at at any given point. But where do you fit as far as being blameless and having clear and having wounded and weak, even though you're all believers? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about that. You can't even see this stuff without the Holy Spirit. Exactly. That's a good point. Cheryl? Is it possible for humans to have a pure conscience at all? I think so. Because in the context, let's see, where's the pure one? Sometimes it's translated that First Peter three sixteen. I think some translation pure. Yeah. In fact, this last description, a perfect conscience, and is speaking after the fall. Now that's positional, I believe. Just like we're we're considered in Christ right now, holy and blameless. But that's positional. Positional. What do you mean? In other words, from God's perspective, he treats us as if we have already gone and already have our total new nature and our old nature has been removed. That's the way God treats us. In Christ, 
Okay? But we still have a sin nature. We still have that tendency. And I believe when you confess your sin, like First John 1 John 1.9 says, we basically can restore a damaged conscience to what God views it as perfect, but it's positional. And we're still with the possibility of wounding it again. Yeah, God might see it that way, but for us, because we live in a... Sin. Uh, sin, and because we live in a continuum of time right now, for us, for us, it's a process to yes. go from a wounded uh, conscious, conscious right. to a blameless one, or from a weak to, to a, a clear one. So right. it's a process for us because it involves... All the little, like differential equations. You got to keep breaking it down. All those little steps. There you go. Math right. analogy. Good. All those little tiny <laughs> steps to go along in order to reach this. But God still regards us and and treats us with the love as if we are perfect. Exactly. As He is encouraging us in all these little tiny iterations, iterations mm-hmm. of it to right. make the choices that will help it grow. Exactly. And that's the Christian walk. That's the Christian walk. And the last little descriptive that we looked in in 1 Timothy 4.2 is the seared conscience, like an iron that destroys nerve endings. So did you have verses on your text? Yes. Your notes? What are the verses? Oh, you want them. Force me to go to my notes. Uh, We are. We want to be good for Defiled. Titus 1.15. You got the seared, that was First Timothy 4.2, cleansed, Hebrews 9.14, perfect, Hebrews 9.9. That was First Timothy 4.2. So if God is seeing us as with our new nature and sees us as blameless, but we still choose to stretch our conscience, I mean, his expectations of us are... Perfection. Now, of course, we can't reach that, mm-hmm. but we can practice... Yeah, yeah. No. yeah, but we will reach it but not when we go to be with him. Right. Well, that's the old thing. If I do it, I love God. Yeah. Right. But if we are pushing our conscience and stretching it, we can still wound it, stretch it, yeah. soften it. I think so. Yeah. But he still sees us as wounds. Yes. Mm. That's grace. That's, that's the definition of grace. So what are the conditions? Putting things together... The condition of the unbeliever, he's in a condition where he's always burdened with guilt. He is always, in other words, his conscience always carries damage, if you will. It's always, and I think there's a spectrum there as well. But it's always with guilt because he's not forgiven. He has not received cleansing. He has not received what Christ has provided. So the unbeliever is always under a burden of guilt. This is why when you lead somebody to Christ, oftentimes they feel this weight lifted off of them and they were carrying a weight and they sense it and they feel it and it's lifted and a lot of times it's an emotional experience. Now they are forgiven. That's the difference between a believer and unbeliever, simply that they're forgiven. They didn't change instantaneously, but their hearts were transformed. And now that guilt has been taken off of their conscience. But the unbeliever is always in a state of under guilt. And after the fall, every unbeliever, as you were talking about, every unbeliever has a damaged conscience. So you can say that mankind is born with 
want me to take it the next step and go to that person and say, you know, I know I've wronged you. I want to ask your forgiveness and I want to clear up our relationship. But the conscience is guiding us. So that's the possibility, the condition of the unbeliever and the condition of the believer in relationship to conscience. That's how the conscience functions. That's how it's designed to work in mankind. And we can continually renew that conscience. That's what Mary Lee was talking about, renewing it. Now, the word conscience is not used in this context, but by learning what the word teaches, now we are refining that whole area of conscience in terms of being very specific and very accurate in terms of what is right and what is wrong. And it's only the Bible that does that. And by the way, conscience is not always the best guide because we can have a seared conscience. In fact, there are tribes that in what's the location down near New Zealand? Papua New Guinea. Yeah, where the highest honor is to deceive somebody. Treachery. Treachery. They have seared consciences. Their conscience is saying it's a good thing to deceive people, and the ultimate is to deceive them to the point of killing them. That's a seared conscience. Conscience is not, you know, it's a damaged conscience. It's not a good guide. The only guide is the Word of God because it makes specific what, in fact, is specifically right and wrong. Ray, I was just thinking that if you want to use your nerve analogy a little bit, Damaged nerves can be repaired. And so that's a lot of therapy that's done when someone's had a stroke, when someone has had a right. trauma of some sort. Right. Therapists work to restore connections, to restore the damaged nerves yes. and enable proper communication. And spiritually, the only way is the Word of God. Right. But and that's why we need process. to be in it. Of being process. renewed, so it comes and it's a process where we have to exercise those spiritual muscles, making yeah. those choices rather than those over here. Yeah, and a lot of times we can rationalize sin. It's not that bad, or everybody's doing it, or whatever. So conscience is not, if you will, perfect. It's fallen, In fact, it's fallen as well, yeah. But it's the Word of God. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live the lives that God wants us to. Okay, so that's the condition. There's an awful lot of people out there that do not know that they're burdened. <laughs> that's right. And they're nice people. And they don't. Yeah. And they're trying to do good. Exactly. And they don't right. see a need. That's right. Because because we're talking about spiritual things, and the unbeliever is blind to these things. Second Corinthians four four. They're also dead. They're dead in they their transplant. But they're dead. not burdened. Yeah. And they don't they're not. That, they yeah. don't feel burned. Because their conscience is seared. It's like, you know, you cut the nerve endings, I don't have, I have no feeling in this hand. It's a burden. But they're not doing that. Yeah. They're in life doing good. Well by whose definition? By which standard and yeah, exactly. By which definition exactly. Ray, so the that, functions on the on your previous slide, I just want to add a little bit to it. Uh, clear after confession. The, the passage itself is, is very strong. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes. And that's what Betty was asking about earlier. Is it possible 
to have a conscience that is righteous before God. That passage says it is. Yes. Now, it may only be for seconds until we sin again. Or point, nanoseconds, even. The point is, there is a point yes. where that occurs, and that is a clear heart first, promise. First John 1, 9. Very good. Thanks, Bill. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So these are the basic functions of the conscience to distinguish right and wrong, and everybody has that. If you want a verse for it, 2 Corinthians 1.12, we're already out of time, so we won't look these up. To distinguish right from wrong. It also is to guide decisions. That's the function. The unbeliever has that as well. So when he does things that are wrong, there's the signals. Unless the signals are just totally seared. Guide decisions, Romans 1.9.1. I think Paul uses his own... Experience. He uses the word conscience. I mean, we're going to pick this up more, right? Yeah, we're just going to go as far as we can today. And then the last part of verse 15, their thoughts alternately accusing, this is what the conscience is doing, accusing or else defending. In other words, yeah, this is right. This is what the Word of God teaches. This is what God's will is. So, the function, guide decisions, number three, to restrain sin. And that's the passage, uh, John 16, 8, where the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. So it restrains sin. Convict of sin. In other words, oh, okay, I need to go to that person and ask their forgiveness. I need to go to the Lord and ask his. So it convicts us, convinces us. And it's the Word of God that accurately pinpoints what is and what is not sin. So we need to know the Word. And then fifthly, the passage we look at assures us that we're in fellowship. I'm at peace. My conscience is cleared. I'm at peace. And by the way, you can have a false sense of guilt. And it's the Word of God that clears that up. false sense of guilt. An example, I was talking to a friend not just a few weeks ago. Uh, she was under some guilt. She called. We had a long talk. She was having a problem with a friend, and she couldn't decide whether she was in the wrong or the friend was in the wrong, and we, she, we talked through the whole thing. Blaming herself. Yeah, blaming herself. And some people are more sensitive. Some people are more sensitive. After we got done with the conversation, she said, Man, I, you know, thank you, because it relieved her conscience because I could not discern, I could see clearly where that other person was piling guilt on her. And she was taking it. And I said, you didn't do anything wrong. You didn't Some do anything wrong. tend to collect guilt because people see Yeah, that's a false guilt. Some, that can be a false guilt. It's the Word of God, and I gave her the passage that illustrated the principle. And that passage removed that false guilt as well. I think if we're not surrendered... To, to God, the like, <coughs> absolutely, we know, absolutely. You know what? What's the controllers? Like, like we, like somehow we could tell them that's. I don't know. It's just like there's the Holy Spirit. It's the Word of God. Yeah, the but it's Holy Spirit. it's active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Absolutely. It's in us as yep. we move and breathe. Okay, we finished verse fifteen. Do you believe it? So next week we'll look at verse 16. Closing thought here. Walking in Christ or walking in the Spirit means maintaining a clear conscience. 
Walking with confessed sin. Confessing our sin on a consistent basis. Who wants to close for us? You got it? Yes. Father, thank you for teaching us for a conversation um, for our conscience. Today, walking in us, that we do within us. Because now in Jimmy, who has moved on as well, bless them in North Carolina. Amen.